Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined by Tom Boyke, Director of the Global Health Program and Senior Fellow for Global Health, Economics and Development at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's also a Senior Consultant to the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. Seppi, Tom, thanks so much for making time to be with us today. My great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's start. You published, along with a a large number of co-authors, a very ambitious piece of work April 22nd, published in The Lancet. It's got a long title. Bear with me for a second here. Assessing COVID-19 Pandemic Policies and Behaviors and Their Economic and Educational Trade-Offs Across U.S. States from January 1st, 2020 through July 31st of 2022, an observational analysis. So, Tom, let's just start with the basics around this very ambitious and important piece of work. Why did you undertake it? What were the methods you were using? I know it's very reliant on correlations and regressions. What were your goals? And then most importantly, uh, as you're trying to sort out the interrelationship among multiple variables and health outcomes in terms of COVID death, illness, and impacts on education and employment, sort of what, where did this leave you in the bottom line conclusions. So thank you. So let's just start with that big question and then we'll move through a number of other sub-elements. Well, thanks again for the interest in this study. We pursued it because while the U.S. of course struggled in this pandemic, not all U.S. states struggled equally. Even when you account for just for all the relevant biological factors, you know, the age of state populations, rates of key pre-existing health conditions like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, rates of obesity, and so forth, there's still a nearly fourfold difference in the best performing U.S. states and the worst performing states. Some U.S. states did as well as countries in Scandinavia. Some U.S. states matched the worst performing states in the world. That's actually a much bigger variation than you see in U.S. life expectancy across states and most other health conditions. But in that wide variation, there is reason for hope. Because if policymakers can mitigate the specific factors that drove some U.S. states to do poorly in this pandemic and do a little more closely to how the better performing states did, we might be able to save many more lives in the next crisis. So the way we did that is the first thing is just to do, try to make an apples to apples comparison. So we adjusted for factors that might impact infection rates, like for instance, population density, and we adjusted for factors that might impact um, death rates from contracting this virus. So again, primarily age and rates of key chronic diseases. 
And once you do that, then you're left with the variation you still see between states. And then we assess what the sources were of that variation by looking at what they're associated with, with key political, healthcare, economic factors, the adoption of different mandates. And we did that to try to answer, you know, all the key questions people have had in this pandemic. So what role did socioeconomic and racial inequalities play in this big interstate variation in U.S. COVID outcomes? Did the states with better health care or public health capacity do better? How much does politics influence the results in this pandemic? Did the states that imposed more mandates like masks or business closures and sustained them longer, did they do better in this pandemic? And then last, what were the trade-offs ultimately? States that performed well on health measures adopted these policies. Did they do this at the detriment of their economies and educational systems? And we try to answer those questions in the study. Thank you. I must say, I found the framework uh, very compelling. I mean, I thought, first of all, your argument that pre-pandemic realities were very decisive. If you were suffering from poverty, educational levels, race and ethnicity had great impact on, on the outcomes. But then you added in access to health care, state's willingness to use the mandates, individuals choosing to protect themselves, especially with taking vaccines, and then this factor around interpersonal trust, which we'll get to in a moment. I also found it very compelling that you enumerated these states that did really well. And it's not just the Northeast. It's Hawaii, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Utah, and Washington State. We were just in Washington State last week and had a forum with Umar Shah, the Secretary of Health, and the former mayor of Seattle, and a bunch of people that were involved in the response. And it was great to really hear how they did this, because they brought a level of innovation and skill and determination to that task, and it paid off. I also like the fact that you said there are those on the other side of the equation that were more on par with Russia or really bad performing countries. And that included our own Washington, D.C., along with Arizona, West Virginia, Mississippi, New Mexico, Colorado. Not a, you know, a, a very interesting mix. And some of those are Republican governed. Some of them are Democratic governed. And of course, in between those states is the mass of states that did pretty poorly. So the big picture is we were terrible 1.1 million deaths, ranked 66th in, in global terms in performance. But as you say, you're identifying high performing places and you're breaking the problem down. You mentioned hope, but does this give you significant hope that you can translate those good experiences into concrete lessons for policymakers looking forward? It does, actually, for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's it's critical, particularly with COVID, where we've all experienced this together. It's been such a invasive experience in people's daily lives. Everybody has an opinion about what mattered in this pandemic and how we should think about this crisis. So one of the things we really wanted to do is to bring a data-driven, peer-reviewed approach. This is a year-long study involving six different academic institutions. We had political scientists on it, on it economists, epidemiologists. It's just a, was a massive undertaking. Three rounds of peer review, eight reviewers right. um, to get this done, all to really try to give the most rigorous assessment we could to these underlying questions. 
And you're right. So much of what drove what emerges from this study, so much what it drove interstate differences were pre-pandemic circumstances. And it's, you know, not surprising. Plagues put a mirror to the societies they afflict, inflict, and you can see those differences. But what our study really allows you to do is to identify the really place-specific drivers, even within those themes that that made a difference in this pandemic. So for instance, a lot of southeastern states with large um, African-American populations did poorly. They do poorly actually on a lot of different health issues. But then you have states in the southwest that tend to have different governors of different parties, don't have Medicaid expansion, have reasonable, robust healthcare systems, but still did poorly. And what we saw there is it seems to be associated with low rates of health insurance among Latino populations or in frontier states where you had low use of mandates. All this is to say, if we can adopt a place specific approach and address some of the inequities and insufficiencies that have been revealed in this pandemic, I truly believe we could do better next time. One thing that jumps out from this that's a bit counterintuitive and I wanted to ask you to illuminate You said that public health expenditure by state and public health personnel levels didn't correlate with better health outcomes. Why is that? So, and it's not just public health levels of expenditure. It's actually most measures of healthcare capacity also didn't correlate with better outcomes in this pandemic. Part of that does seem to be around partisanship and politics, particularly on the healthcare side. So when we dug a little bit deeper and we tried as part of this effort, not just to identify associations with better performance, but to identify pathways. So we dug a little bit deeper on this healthcare factor. And what you find is actually in states that went very heavily for the Democratic candidate in the last election, healthcare capacity does matter. It's associated with higher vaccination rates. But in states that went very heavily for the Republican candidate in the last election, there is no association between the strength of your health system and your vaccination rates, suggesting that the robustness of your health care system matters in states where people are willing to make use of it. Tom, that's how you wound up saying that this was really at the macro level. What we're observing is this is a syndemic of politics and race. Absolutely. And that's a tragically classic American story that the mixture of race and politics influence our our health outcomes and the broader functioning of our societies. And we saw that in spades in this pandemic. Tom, hi, it's Andrew. I want to talk a little bit about trust in these communities, but I also want to come back to party identity as well, because I think it's really important. Trust figures very prominently in your analysis. And can you describe what you've learned about its role and the understanding of how it should be reconstructed? Yeah. So trust plays an outsized role in in response to health crises in general. When confronted by a novel virus, the most effective way government can protect its citizens is by convincing them and enabling them to take the measures to protect themselves. And especially in free societies, you know, this study, our previous study that looked at country differences or global study, and many other studies of past um, health crises have shown that the willingness of citizens to protect themselves really is associated with their levels of trust 
trust between them and other members of their community, and trust with their government. We saw that in this U.S. study. We saw that on the global level. Um, there are studies that have shown this in H1N1, influenza, in SARS, in Ebola. This is a finding that people continue to find counterintuitive, but keeps getting replicated over and over. I think the big challenge that we have after these studies is incorporating this into pandemic preparedness and response to the future. So, Tom, you call for something called a tailored, community-based, transparent efforts. What does that mean? Yeah. So again, you know, there are these broad themes of what we saw in this study about the importance of race, the importance of politics, the importance of education and economic inequities around poverty. All of that is true. But when you, again, dig deeper into the study, what you'll see when you look at those states is different combinations mattered in different places in this pandemic. Again, southeastern states have had, unfortunately, historical, persistent, deeply entrenched health inequities. The solution you might use in those environments might be different than what you might use in frontier states in the Northwest, uh, where uh, it's less around race, it's less around healthcare inequities, and it's more around willingness to actually adopt the measures that appear to have made a difference from a policy perspective, like mandates and masks and vaccines in this study. So that really tailored approach to the deficiencies we see may be the route to doing better in the next crisis. Let me also ask you about this article in terms of you make the case that Democratic and Republican governors were evenly responsible for the most high performing states. What did you take the meaning of that to be in, in thinking about the future? So our top 10 states in this pandemic were evenly split between five that the highest elected official is the Democrat and five in which the highest elected official is a Republican. Um, some of those, of course, are your states that people would say, ah, well, those are blue states, Maryland, New Hampshire. And it's true, a couple of them are, but many of them aren't. So states, other states in the top 10 included Ohio, Nebraska, states that one might not think of as traditionally blue states. And what that suggests to us is that this is less about party and more about politics. When you look at mandates, and this is part shown in our study as well, more than 90%, almost every state adopts mandates in the early phase of this pandemic. They all maintain them for roughly the same length of time. So state-level mandates were only in place in this country for 12 to 16 months, and then they drop out everywhere. A big part of the differences are in the later half of that year, which states adopt more and uh, mandates and enforce them more intensely in their public's adoption of it. But less around, again, some party position and more, more about small level politics between the relationships of state leaders and their local citizens. If I can just interject here, I mean, one thing that that suggests to me, Tom, is that governors are enormously powerful and important to the outcomes that happen in an emergency of this kind. And when you have a Governor Ricketts, now Senator Ricketts, you have a Governor Hogan, you have a Governor DeWine, 
You have the Republican governor of Vermont. These folks are focused on governance. They're not focused on performance art. They're much more focused on delivery to their populations versus striking poses in polemical debates that went on. They didn't get enclosed and enveloped in the worsening partisan and politicized debates. They had plenty to say that was critical of the federal government federal government response, different agencies' response and performance. But these, the expectation was they would take command of the lead elements of the response, and they did that, just like their, the Democratic counterparts. I think that's a powerful message to all about the possibility of bipartisanship. I completely agree. There are many governors that, again, match some of the best performing countries in the world. And this is in some circumstances where we, we didn't have a lot of advantages. States that were uh, Washington state, as you point out, is a great example, hit early in this pandemic. First deaths, first cases, first mass deaths. And, you know, with intense levels of international travel to to Washington state. And, you know, is one of our states that actually not just performed well on health, but actually performed very well economically, performed very well educationally. And it is endorses the idea that you, you put out about the importance of state level governance and how it can make a difference in the future. And one of the things that we hope with this study is that it highlights those cases, because when you do a rigorous assessment, a data driven assessment, it allows accountability, not just for the states that didn't do well, but it allows people to point to their successes and hopefully, you know, having that electoral signal between good performance in a crisis and, you know, hopefully, you know, a future viability of those, those politicians, I think is important for people being incentivized to do better next time. Tom, you know, given our worsening partisanship and our increasing polarization, how are we to think about the future responses to dangerous pandemics? I am of the view, and this ties to our trust conversation before, that it is important to think about how we can mend our dysfunctional society, build greater trust across political divides you know, build a stronger base for collective action. But I think we also need to be realistic and plan for failure in those efforts. And the way we should incorporate trust and the way we should incorporate partisanship is to anticipate it, to assess it over time, particularly at the subnational level, again, thinking globally a bit, and adopt, start adopting the strategies that can still spur cooperation, even in what may otherwise seem like dysfunctional settings. I don't think we did that in this pandemic. We actually, over time, we we're very slow, um, particularly at the state level, to address racial inequities early, particularly in the vaccine rollout. It took a while for us to start to develop the strategies that started to bridge the divide around race in different aspects of our health delivery. We actually, in my view, didn't take enough of an effort to anticipate the divides we would see around partisanship. So many of our early task forces, you know, with when we had the presidential transition really wanted, and I understand why, to emphasize the importance of a science-based approach and expertise. I don't know if we did a good enough job incorporating 
people who question that fundamental science. So bringing in the talk show hosts, um, bringing in community leaders from settings where we could have anticipated this partisanship backlash. That was not a early focus. I think in ahead of the next crisis, we need to anticipate it. U.S. trust is famously partisan. When the party uh, in power in the White House switches, you see trust levels also switch. This is completely predictable, and we need to get better at anticipating that as part of our response to a crisis. Tom, you were also uh, trying to get some answers on very difficult questions about trade-offs. We know there's two opposing propositions about what it means if you impose health mandates. What does it mean in terms of economic well-being? What does it mean in terms of learning and mental health consequences for those in schools? There's two broadly opposing viewpoints about that that you summarize there, but you tried to sort of dig in using correlations and multiple regressions and the like, but it proved to be a little difficult. Talk a little bit about, I mean, it was in some ways you you kind of landed on both propositions are right, but we need to know a lot more. That seems to me to be a very important revelation that we still struggle to figure out what the balance is going to be, the trade-offs. Situations vary enormously, but trying to make a decision about when to impose these mandates, when to lift them, when the price is too high, when the risk, the threat of the pathogen is too high. Say a bit more about that. So trust in broader U.S. public health was low before the pandemic, and it's lower still after uh, the COVID crisis. And an essential step, in our view, of rebuilding that trust is to be transparent about what were the educational, economic trade-offs that occurred in the pandemic and instances where they might have been too great to justify the specific protective measures adopted. So, you know, ours ultimately is a observational study. You really can't run a rigorous clinical trial on these kinds of societal issues in a pandemic are very hard to find a natural experiment that would allow you to do so. That said, I mean, we do really try to adopt the strictest standard of statistical significance and identify plausible pathways for every association that we found here. And in some areas, I think the signal is pretty clear. So on overall economy, GDP, it turns out that uh, there's not a lot of evidence to show that state level differences either hindered or helped the broader economy. So the argument that economies could only flourish if we addressed health circumstances first, or the argument the other way, which is that, you know, only by uh, uh, relying on personal freedom and enabling the economy would workforces flourish, there's not a lot of support for that in this study. So that really argues for being very humble in how you make judgments and being very pragmatic and situational. If you're a leader trying to deal with these things, you're not going to get resolute, clear answers one way or another. You're going to have to be very much working your way forward in the situation. And communications, which you said earlier about transparency, is really about communicating to a public that's upset and concerned and skeptical what we know and don't know in a more honest and humble way. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm saying the the quiet part out loud about that. Um, So often in the pandemic, we're wanting to give people clarity about what they should do. 
that we were less open and transparent about what we did not know and the uncertainties about that. I I completely agree. Um, We do see on the employment side that there is, perhaps not surprisingly, a tie to lower employment and restaurant closures. Sure. Um, That certain industries, when they were hit hard, and we do account for differences in states in terms of what their employment sector looks like. But even when you make that standardization, you still see this effect on the restaurant side. We also Uh, don't have yet, Tom, that $5 trillion that got spread across the United States. We still don't have a very clear picture, clear visibility into how different populations were better protected in different states because of a PPP and because of these measures, these instruments that were meant to provide a foundation, a support against collapse and worst outcomes. And that, I think, is when you think about future analyses, building on what the remarkable work that you've done with your colleagues, seems to me that's one of the next stages is trying to understand the flow of dollars and where did they flow effectively and not effectively. We do look at one set of policies. We look at our paid leave, uh, paid family leave and sick leave and changes there. And you have some sense that that certainly made a difference, particularly not surprisingly on the infection side in terms of giving people the ability to stay home or keep family members at home. But there's a lot we still don't know about the effectiveness of different policies put in. One of the areas where it's a little harder to get a signal because we are doing our study at the state level is on education, where you do see, obviously, there are significant educational consequences of this pandemic. Um, They are not associated with state-level school closures, but much of that occurred at the district level, so it's a little hard to account for uh, in a study like this, and does seem to be driven by a broader set of behaviors around caution. So, for instance, higher infections were associated with higher fourth-grade math scores. States where people may have been... um, less reticent to send their children to school, you see some indication that there may have been better educational performance. This does reinforce what I think a lot of people agree now is the importance of in-person education, particularly at an early level of schooling and for math in particular. And thinking about future pandemics, we do have these, these school problems are real. I know you just had a podcast on these topics and thinking about how we can adjust for that and better ensure a more robust educational environment while keeping kids and their families safe. Tom, you and your co-authors are making a really broad argument that, yes, we need better surveillance countermeasures, but we also need to focus on racial inequity, health infrastructure, and workforce, pursuing multiple goals simultaneously. Are you optimistic that this argument can gain currency across the political divide? I am optimistic. We do actually do this level of community-specific monitoring on other challenges. So for disaster relief, um, there are a number of different indices that take into account local levels of uh, infrastructure capability to, to respond. CDC has a number of different social vulnerability indices that account for some of these factors. We don't haven't done enough of this as part of our pandemic preparedness and response planning to incorporate that in. It also has tended not to include measures like trust, which we have not monitored at the community level, but I think will be important 
after these studies in the future to to do so. But it does suggest that addressing these community-level vulnerabilities in peacetime is going to be important for a better performance in crisis time in the next pandemic that might emerge. Tom, we usually ask our our guests to comment on what gives them optimism. I think you just answered that question. So we're not, we're going to skip that one for the conclusion, but I want to come back to make two points and ask your reaction. Well, first point is that we're currently in a period where there's quite a bit of anger, frustration, rage being expressed in various fora. You look at the house subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic Congressman uh, Winstrup and Congressman Ruiz, both medical professionals, the chair and, and ranking minority, are trying their best to try and keep this in a pragmatic, commonsensical kind of center, but they're not always succeeding. There's a lot of runaway rage, the vilification of public health. There's a lot of conspiracy thinking around attacking Fauci, Francis Collins, NIH, around the COVID origin dispute and it was that some sort of warp of science cover up etc cetera, etc cetera. so you have that going on then you have our electoral cycle where you have you know governor DeSantis publishing a book with a whole chapter on this type of of conspiracy thinking and, and vilification of fauci so there's a hardening of these divisions and an ever more extreme forms of it being seen which raises the question, when do those that are spouting this sort of stuff be called to account, or when do they run out of energy around this? I mean, the a lot of Americans have turned away from extremism in other forms, and is this something that we could expect to see Americans begin to say, enough of this, can we go back to a more civil and informed discussion? The other point is, the public health community itself, the traditional public health community, has been very reluctant to engage in much self-criticism or introspection. That's not in, that's not, it's, there's plenty of exceptions to that, but overall that's been a problem. And there was this remarkable interview just done recently, uh, Tony Fauci speaking with David Wallace Wells in the New York Times, very long interview last week in which uh, D- Dr. Fauci was making the point, big mistakes were made on all sides, And the divisions are extraordinary, and we need to figure out how to leap across those divisions, and there has to be more of an admission of mistakes, which was a bit of a thunderclap, I thought. Um, So maybe we could close with talking about we do have an environment that's overheated and hardening up, but we also have people admitting the need to move beyond and think more critically and show more introspection. What are your thoughts on that, given the work that you've just completed? So I, I share your worry. Um, I actually think on a global level, people, people ask me all the time, um, was I disappointed on how we did in the pandemic? And of, of course, but I'm not surprised. I actually think at the early level, um, early part of the pandemic, rather globally, um, some International institutions performed as well or better than I would have expected. I really fear that we are where we are doing poorly is at this phase. This current phase. This current phase where we have done a very poor job of articulating what the strategic objectives were. 
uh, in our pandemic response, what the metrics were in terms of how we should judge whether we are reaching them and what our priorities should be moving forward for interventions to do to do better next time. What has happened is this has been perceived as a political liability, this conversation for both parties in the yeah. U.S., and people would prefer not to talk about it, or if they're going to talk about it, they're going to talk about it in the kind of counterproductive conversations, slogan-driven conversations you've just had. We don't see political leaders of different stripes standing up and saying we need a new conversation on this. And the reality is the U.S. has been among the worst performing country of its peers every single year of this pandemic. That is not particular to one president. That's not particular to a single year or pre or post vaccines. Yeah. But it is suggestive of that our broader problems were more around U.S. society than the specifics of uh, uh, the policies adopted uh, both by both sides. And we need to have a re response in the future that better accounts for the societal um, weaknesses that our study and other studies have identified. It is really important in my view, I think the role for people like myself for uh, great institutions like CSIS, again, I think we'll be putting forward fearlessly this level of a data-driven analyses on what made a difference and the kinds of solutions that can help us perform better next time. To try to empower that debate with evidence is really going to be important. Um, reliable, rigorous evidence going to be important for trying to break through on a conversation that is quickly hardening. Because I worry that we will end up worse off for this pandemic and our preparedness for the future, not because of unwillingness necessarily to invest, not because of the breakdowns that happened very early in the pandemic, but our failure to be able to identify what mattered, be honest about the deficiencies that happened, and have a clear set of priorities and metrics about what we need to do better next time. Um, and I worry a lot that it is this current phase that we are really doing a poor job of. Thank you. Um, Tom, congratulations on this work. It's very impressive. It's very important. And as we've all, I think, over the course of this conversation explored, it provides us with a lot of insights and a lot of thoughts on, on how to orient and think about the future. So thank you and congratulations. And thanks for making the time to be with us today. It's great to have you back here on the podcast. My great pleasure. Always, always nice to talk to you, Steve. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit CSIS.org.